Hello and welcome to the Escafe House, the podcast brought to you by the Baroque Collective Solomon's Knot. I am SK Artistic Director Jonathan Sells, and in this episode, SK Hornstar Annika Scott, Professor Bertel van Burr of Western Washington University, and I dig deep into the origins of the horn in art music performance, specifically in the context of the music of our beloved Johann Sebastian Bach. So welcome to this edition of the S Cafe House, where we will be discussing Bach's use of the horn and the horn in Baroque music in general, something we've never touched on before, ahead of a project, a horn-tastic program of Bach, which we are playing at the end of July this uh, this year. Um, I've got two fantastic guests with me in the S Cafe House today, uh, Professor Bertil van Boer and horn player Annika Scott. And I'd love to just introduce the two of you. Bertil van Boer is Professor Emeritus at Western Washington University and has been active as a musicologist, composer, conductor and violist. He has regularly contributed to the Grove Dictionary of Opera and Grove Dictionary of Music and is the author of several books, including a historical dictionary of music in the classical period, the second expanded edition of which will be out this autumn. He's an expert in 18th century music, especially in Scandinavia, and has also published some very interesting work on Bach's use of the horn back in 1980. Welcome, Bertel. Thank you. Uh, 1980, that gives you a, a sense that, uh, well, when I lost my pet Tyrannosaurus, you know, that, that was, it was all over. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, we, I, I was going to, no, I'm not, I'm not going to say that 1980 was before I was born. I'm, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> so uh, Annika, Annika Scott is here. Annika has been playing horn for SK, or at least the Solomon's, Solomon Ensembles, for nearly 15 years, since we're not <laughs> going through historical facts. Yeah. Um, since she played 
since she first played in our performance of Handel's Solomon back in 2009. Yeah. And has since reappeared with us for plenty of Bach, including, of course, the Mass in B minor and Christmas Oratorio, and most recently a program of Christmas cantatas by Johann Kuhnau, which included the very lovely Wie schön leuchtet der Morgenstern, mm. which we performed last year, and I hope some of which will make it onto YouTube one day which for everybody to enjoy. Um, and I have to say we are very lucky to have her because she is essentially a historical horn superstar and plays as principal horn or horn soloist for world-class ensembles and conductors such as John Elliott Gardner, Raphael Pichon, 16, Irish Baroque Orchestra, Dunedin Consort, and many, many more. Um, where, are you, where are you right now, Annika? Whom are you playing for? It's first thing, in, first thing in the morning. I'm in a very wet and cold autumnal Canberra off in Australia. Uh, yes, this, this has been quite a remarkable feat for the three of us getting together. I'm, I'm out in Australia at the moment working with the Australian Romantic and Classical Orchestra doing something quite different to what I do with you in uh, Solomon's Knot. I'm uh, working, playing uh, 19th century uh, chamber music, so um, a nonet by Louise Frarenc and the septet by Ludwig van Beethoven. So, yeah, quite quite a different enterprise today. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's fabulous that the three of us in three quite different places have managed to get together, the miracle of technology and all that. Yeah, I'm extremely grateful for your de dedication to this transatlantic edition or intercontinental edition of the Escafe House. Bertel's over in the top left-hand corner of the USA. Um, I think you are 10 hours behind me in Amman, Jordan, and I myself are seven hours behind Annika in, in, in Canberra. So <laughs> it's actually tomorrow and today all at the same time. But, you know, nothing shall hold us back from discussing this really, really interesting topic. Um, mm -hmm. Annika, I was wondering whether you could kick us off with uh, the story of how a hunting instrument made it into the church. I'm often aware, as as a horn player specialising in historical performance, we have so much excellent repertoire from the first half of the 18th century. Um, it's something that, um, for me, made the instrument incredibly attractive when I first started playing it, that we have these wonderful works by Bach as a very central feature of our repertoire. But then we've got all the other um, big-name composers from the time, your, your Handels and your Valdis, um, Plus, you mentioned Kunal just now. We have so much repertoire. You know, you, you and I have been talking about doing some Zelenka, hint, hint. Um, so many composers wrote love Zelenka. beautiful, yeah, brilliant stuff. So many composers wrote for the instrument in the early half of the 18th century. But one of the things that I'm often aware of when speaking to colleagues is just how much of a Johnny-come-lately the horn is into the musical world. I mean, in a way, aren't, our nearest uh, equivalent is um, our colleagues playing the clarinet. We come to the musical world relatively late, and especially if I start to compare what I get to do as a horn player with my colleagues, the trumpet players and the trombone players, their heritage, their repertoire really goes far further back than we get to play as horn players. So you do get a bit of a spirit of us being something quite new, something 
bringing a new injection of life into the musical world in the early 18th century. But going, going back to where we come from, it won't surprise listeners to know all about our hunting heritage, that this is very much where the instrument comes from. And this is something that you can see in how composers have tackled the instrument throughout throughout our history. If you think of um, the sort of things I, I often think about when you start to hear the horn in film music, for example, quite often film, use, uh, film composers today, if you have a scene which is in the outdoor world, you'll hear flutes representing birds' song and you'll hear horns representing um, you know, the great outdoors. So historically, we've never really lost this association with the great outdoors. Um, and we see certain things happening prior to the instrument entering the orchestra. Um, one of the things that for me has always been quite important is the difference between um, different hunting traditions within Europe. So, for example, this points to why we have this very strange term in the Anglophone world of French horn. Because in the UK, our hunting instrument was a very short, short little bugle. Um, you can't get anything musically interesting out of a little short bugle. You've got a couple of signalling notes maximum. That's not really something that's going to grab the attention of composers. There's not really much you can do with it. But France, France had a very, very significant hunting tradition with these very wide looped hunting horns. Now, because these instruments are much longer, we have more notes available. We've got a lower harmonic series, so we can get 16 plus notes on these wide looped French instruments. And so you can, can I just ask, is this, yeah. where, is this why we call it the French horn? I reckon so. I reckon so. It's a really, it's a really, it's an anglophone uh, word. We see it start to crop up in the late seventeenth century. We see it first on things like um, we've got a, a trade card for a maker, William Bull, in London, and he says that he can make French horns. So it's 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 a term that we start to see when the instrument, uh, when we start to see this instrument that's used in a more musical fashion, because the French hunting horn has more capabilities than our little little short English hunting horn. So about 1690, 1690 is the first time you start to see um, the term being used. And it's of, uh, to my eyes, to my, to my eyes, it's, it's seeing the French influence coming in in the UK. So we have this wide looped French instrument, which is more musically usable. But also the other thing is that um, in in the 17th century, the hunt was such a big part of society. Um, and it, it kind of went above and beyond just finding food. We start to see it as a very central part of um, society. We start to see um, it becoming a really big event. So, for example... If you've got these hunting horn players who are capable of playing musical entertainment, after you've had the hunt, you'll engage these hunting horn players to to be part of the party afterwards to entertain you with the music they can fashion from these instruments. But the really, to my mind, the really crucial thing that brings us from the hunting field into the musical world is the rise of opera. 
and we start to see the first indications of horn players being used, often in opera settings. Because I don't wish to say that composers are lazy, but if you want to make a really clear indication to the audience that the plot of your opera has now gone from, say, Act 1 is an um, um, interior scene in the court and Act 2 is outside, you get a couple of hunting horn players from round the block in the hunting lodge, get them to play a few of these, these um, fanfares, and everybody in the room will know, ah, we're now outdoors. So it's a bit like I always say, it's, it's a bit like we're a musical sound effect at first, where we're something that's been appropriated from somewhere else in the culture of the time. Because as soon as the audience heard the sound of the horn, heard that sonic world, they knew the implications. And with that came a whole load of other symbolism because the hunting calls of the time were well known to audiences. So you can also bring a whole load of other levels of nuance of um, what what we were trying to message by our call. So yeah, that's how we sort of first enter the musical world as basically a sound effect in opera. So there's a parallel here almost between the chorale tunes which composers were using in church music in that sort of aud- auditive uh, memory that people had and an older kind of trope with on the on the opera stage with those um, let's say secular, uh, secular melodies, which were familiar from a completely different kind of context. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes. If I can jump in here just a little bit, uh, some of the earliest uh, hunting horn fanfares, so to speak, uh, were actually done in the court of Louis the Fourteenth with the Grande Écurie, uh, and that was really quite Im- important because. These guys were there to do anything outdoors, and often after the hunt, what would happen is you would have this thing called a carousel, where people would play act. Uh, you, you would slaughter a paper mache dragon or something of this sort. And included in this were hunting calls. And what you would do is you would not have professional players, you would have the servants who were actually on the hunt come in and kind of sub. <laughs> This was their gig for the afternoon. Um, I might also add that one of the main reasons for the large uh, coil hunt was simply because people got lost. And in the medieval period, you had small horns, literally cow horns and things, and those would be lost easily. You get bucked off your horse and, the, and the, the thing goes flying and you can't find it in the underbrush. Well, when you invent this thing, you wear it across your shoulder and it probably wouldn't help you if you got bucked off a horse. Uh, it would hurt, but at least you'd have your horn. And the calls themselves, if, you, if one hears the type of overtones, this basically says a number of different things. Hi, we've got the stag in sight. Help, I'm lost. That was a good one. Uh, because the overtones of the horn, unlike the trumpet, can actually spread miles. Whereas the trumpet itself, um, because the overtones are, are much less um, broad, you can't hear it. <laughs> Uh, after a certain way. So here, these guys have this thing, and pretty soon people like the sound of it. Yes. Do we have any idea why 
it took the horn much longer to enter the let's say the more cultivated musical arena than instruments like the trumpet is it something to do with the just the nature of the instrument itself that lends itself less easily to well, we, uh, to... we would need to be we we would need to have transition to the wide looped instrument because that's the big thing when we start to have sufficient notes that 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 makes us um, capable of entering the musical world um, one of the things that I'm I don't know if Bertel's able to jump in on this one of the things that um, it, we've we've already mentioned France and the importance of hunting in the French court um, we have the development of technology about being able to make these wide loop uh, instruments and exactly as uh, I, I just loved the point that Bertel just made about the sheer practicalities, the sheer practicalities of it. Uh, one of the things that I've often heard about um, the different looped French instruments is that there is a, there's um, at some point, there's a correlation between fashion for hats and horn playing, because there's a point where the, the I, I would love, I would love to know if this is verifiable, because to me, to me, this has the, the smell of a myth about it, but it's a rather nice story that there's a point in which fashion went from the very wide brimmed um, uh, hat to a smaller hat, because if you had to put your horn over your head, you couldn't do that if you had a wide a wide hat so you had to have a loop of the horn that was able to get over the brim of your hat so the reason i mentioned that is we see how much the instrument is really um uh, really linked up with basic practicalities of day-to-day living i th- i think that part of it was just at some point some point somebody realized the musical potential of it and t- to us it's so obvious that the horn is a musical instrument but at, until a certain point it was a messaging service it was a way of transmitting information and for example if you think of it today in the terms of contemporary music every so often we'll see um something that a, a contemporary composer uh, reutilize reutilizes for musical purpose so for example i did i did um, a Jörg Wiedmann piece not so long ago and we had um um, one of the musicians who was tasked with playing various forms of plucked guitars of various eras. And at some point he had wooden spoons to play his instrument with. So I, I wonder whether that might be an analogy that today, every so often a composer will reutilize something from day-to-day living as part of writing a piece of music today. And I wonder whether it was just that people didn't clock <laughs> until a certain point, oh, th- this, this, this actually has some... Uh, musical potential, I wonder. Well, Count Anton Spork, in, uh, you know, at the end of the 17th century, um, had a couple of his uh, servants, who were actually mostly hunt-related, learn how to play this new French horn. Um, but one of the things that I've seen is that while we tend to focus on the French horn, we tend to ignore the fact that there were lots of different horns going on around at the same time. Uh, For example, uh, the postal officials had a kind of brass instrument. Um, Eventually, we'll call it the post horn, uh, but it ranged from the old medieval, you know, single cow horn all the way to the, uh, what they call today, the tromba da caccia, um, which was a little bit more sophisticated. Then you have this, this weird thing uh, called 
the uh, tuba. Uh, no, it's not not a regular tuba, but in fact, it was the Roman horn, um, which comes to us from uh, Roman uh, iconography, really, because I don't know surviving examples of this thing. Um, and what they did was they mislabeled it. Uh, in the early uh, 18th century, uh, they called it a lightus, uh, but a lightus is in fact a trumpet. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and you see in in lexicons like Walter, where he's he's got the wrong name for it, but it's clear that that's what they called it at the time. Yeah, the is- the issue of nomenclature becomes really, really major. Um, and I, I think in, in a way this is something that uh, foxes a lot of um, brass playing in general. Like we see this problem way into the 19th century as well, that every so often you're doing something and you're having to sort of work out from a from a modern from a modern twentieth century headset of the brass family being trumpet trombone horn and tuba, you spend a lot of time going. Is this my size? Is this is this my is this my role? And this is when I think a lot of the things about the symbolism of the instruments become incredibly important because the symbolism of what comes within the sort of world of the horn, the the is very different to the symbolism of the world of the trumpet and every so often you do have a little bit of cross-contamination but it is it, it is a i i would agree with Bertolt. it's it's a bit of a vexed issue in the 18th century the nomenclature for sure now the, the, they still uh, have trouble and, and of course musicology has trouble trying to figure out what these things are um especially if there's no uh, actual example of it <laughs> um except perhaps in, in engravings or pictures um it's interesting, though, uh, f- uh, from a historical perspective, that already by the time we get to about 1700 or so, there are really top-class manufacturers, uh, or I should say craftsmen, crafting different types of, of what today we call advanced horns. Uh, uh, we find uh, my favorite is this fellow, Michel Leichnamschneider, uh, which, in, if you're, if any, any readers here are interested, that means cutting up corpses. But that's we'll, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, but uh, he already, by the time we get to the uh, first decade of the uh, 18th century, is making these terminally crooked horns, where you you have the, the things extending out, lowering the ranges, uh, and they're really well done, or at least some of the ones I've seen in the museums are, are really top-class craftsmanship. Leichnam Schneider was incredibly, um, a family of hornmakers, um, incredibly desirable maker. Um, and we, we, we see, um, um, in England, we see a number of people ordering. So he was, uh, they were based in Vienna. We see their instruments being highly desirable, being brought over to England. Um, just, I'm just going to put a shout out. If anybody realises that they've got a strange sort of hunting horn in their attic with Leichnam Schneider written on the bell, please let me know because <laughs> we've got, we've got, we've got, we've got a, quite a lot of tantalising evidence about them being um, ordered by um, quite reputable households in England. And quite a few of them have over the centuries gone, got mislaid. Um, there were, my understanding is that there were two at Cannons where Handel was working, and that we don't know what we don't know what's happened to a lot of these instruments. So, if anybody happens to have one in their attic, please please let us know. Um, 
but yes, the, the, the quality of the makers it also points to what must have been going on in the playing world because you've got the, the, the link between performers and the manufacturers, for sure. Speaking of shout outs, Annika, uh, if anybody, Annika's got a new CD out. We should have mentioned, I should have mentioned this at the top. <laughs> and it's related to Handel as well, uh, speaking of those horns, um, because it's, uh, yeah, as I, as I understood from the radio the other day, uh, a horn player in Ireland who uh, so so but this 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 again gets back to the whole sort of musical world of the 18th century um we have we have so well documented the mobility of musicians and Bertil has already mentioned the the the, the really for us incredibly significant f- figure of um uh, Anton von Spruck, um, this bohemian count, um, who travelled to France, experienced the French hunt, and and uh, Bertel's already mentioned the, the 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 servants who got trained in this. And I, I always think this is fascinating. Could you imagine being a seventeenth century serf, a seventeenth century indentured servant? So you don't really have much agency in life, and you you have your boss who's taking you around what you see as the world and you're having all these new experiences meeting all these you know what on earth must that experience have been like and then one day your boss has a new notion and goes right you're going to learn to play the horn <laughs> it's like so so these these two get trained up in this new thing and then shipped back to your your home territory and this is the beginning of this immense tradition of bohemian horn playing which then we come back to with you just mentioned this new disc uh, mr charles the hungarian this project with the irish baroque orchestra um in england and in um in ireland we have this slightly shadowy character mr charles who's a bit of an impresario he's a horn player he's um an early clarinet player um he's putting on these big concerts in ireland we know out and being in England as well. Um, but we have this sort of mobility of musicians and especially um, the importance of bohemian playing uh, players, wind players, bohemian wind players. Um, and especially I always, um, we're talking about Bach today and we've we've got the importance of Dresden yeah. and the impact of Dresden on um, what was going on at the time. If you look at the, and we've already mentioned Zelenka in conversation, if you look at the um, nationalities of the musicians involved, um, it's it, you know this this United Nations of musicians that's going on at the time. But yeah, so Mr. Charles the Hungarian, he is. Um, we, we've got a few theories as to who he plausibly could have been. Um, whether they're using Hungarian as a you know the foreigner, <laughs> for example. Um, but he Exotic. he's a horn player that's... Yeah, exactly. He's a horn player um, associated with Handel because in, in Dublin he was um, tr- trying to possibly outdo Handel by putting on concerts of Handel's music when Handel had just arrived in Dublin. Um, but for me, one of the things that is um, uh, really inspiring about when we're working with a character like him is piecing together the information we can have about horn playing at the time. So, for example, um, the instruments that we used for this recording were copies of a pair of Hofmaster instruments which are housed in Edinburgh. So Hofmaster, you hear a name like that, of course it's a, it's a, a German maker who had um, come to London. 
Um, and we have two of these horns that are kept in the collection in Edinburgh, which are associated with um, a, a house in my part of England, my my sort of home territory, um, the Midlands. So um, we have these two horns that um, were picked up by a guy called Samuel Hellier, who was um, a sort of minor aristocrat, and he was buying up instruments, buying up music, so that his servants could learn to play them during the mid-18th century. So we have all the letters from Samuel Hellier about these instruments. We've got all the manuscripts that he was picking up of music, including concertos by Mr. Charles, and we've got these instruments surviving. So it's a really fascinating thing, putting the instruments, the letters, and the music all together. Um, so we had two copies of these um, Hofmaster horns for this recording. But, yeah, that's, that, that's just one of those sort of case studies about um, horn players and how this was emerging as a really popular thing during the early 18th century. One one should also uh, also remember that uh, aristocrats at that time didn't do anything except collect. I mean, these are people who literally have no jobs. <laughs> um, so, um, on the other hand, the servants have but one job, and that job is to please whoever is their lord master and occasionally paymaster there. Uh, but what's in, what I found interesting in, in looking at some of the Bohemian um, counts or the Bohemian hunts is that after the hunts, they usually had uh, parties that lasted for days in the local, uh, either the lodge or the main castle. Uh, Spork is notorious for having this, and we do have his uh, uh, salary lists and his, his expense accounts for this. But what we find out is that He's never alone. His horn players don't play for him. They play for all of his guests, and the guests come from all over Europe. You'll find Italian nobility. You'll find uh, Holy Roman nobility. Uh, you'll find Hungarian nobility. They all pop up now and again. They're invited on a hunt. My guess is they don't actually hunt anything. They just sit around and, and watch the servants do it. And then at the end of the day, they come back, and the first thing they hear is the display that Spork or one of these other guys wants to do. And what they do is they give a concert, essentially. Here's what my people can do. And if you're listening to this, what's the first thing you're going to say? Well, I'll tell you. I want one of those. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's what Annika said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can't hire him away. So what you do is you send two of your servants to learn it and then they come back. And of course you have your hunt and your local uh, nobility come and participate. It spreads like wildfire. Mm. Yeah. I can see this movement began i mean coming out of the hunt obviously a very sociable thing i mean this is society class as you say the way of aristocrats to um enjoy themselves and pass the time and and the horn being something so so audible and visible uh kind of celebration of that fact it's really interesting that this this kind of competition of skills arose as as a, i suppose as a kind of friendly rivalry between mm. between nobility but i'm i'm really interested in how musically speaking how those um, calls and hunting calls 
came into the musical fabric. And then by the time you get to the most extreme examples of, of horn writing in, with people like Zelenka and Bach, you know, how, how did we get there? Because, I mean, horn the horn in a hunting context, presumably they they wouldn't have gone that far you know technically speaking there was there's a lot of process of refinement here and i i suppose composers on one side challenging players and maybe we should talk a little bit more about the players well one one of the things which i have always suspected um i i have always suspected that as horn players were part of the musical world earlier than we often quote ourselves as being so for example um, we're, look at, we're looking at Bach specifically today, so often the Hunt Cantata and Brandenburg One are cited as Bach's earliest use for the horn. Um, when we're talking about Handel, we've got the water music, um, and we we do have bits and pieces of evidence that are suggesting that we were part of the musical world beforehand. But for example, one of the things that I've always thought in the case of if we look at Handel, um, Handel doesn't officially write for the horn until he writes water music. However, he had so many opportunities to be um, around horn players prior to this date. Um, I, we might we might talk today about Weissenfels, which is a really important hunting court that Bach and Handel were both associated with. Um, and so, I've always thought it really, really a little bit bizarre that Handel waited and apparently waited until water music to write for the horn and not only that when he writes for the horn that you don't have anybody going oh my gosh this is this brand new thing who'd have thought of putting those with that wow you know this is a new thing if we there's a lot of information about improvisation and there's a lot of information about for example we see it very clearly with um 18th and 17th century timpani playing so I've always suspected that we had an earlier period of horn playing when horn players were very much part of the musical world, but we had come from this oral tradition and that we were that was how we were part of the musical world, that we were improvising the sort of music. We also see, for example, there's um, there's, there's strange things like Pizendal, um works where there's only one movement we're notated in. And so I, I think there's there's a great deal of evidence that that we had an earlier entry into the musical world when it was improvised, when it was an oral tradition. And one of the things that we do very clearly see around the horn world is an issue of notation. How 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 do I actually write what the horn players are playing? And again, that to me points to a crossover from people who are not coming from the same musical uh, literacy as some of the musicians that they were working with. I mean, this is a phenomenon that we have today. In If you're working in certain genres of music, you'll have some people who are musically literate and some people who are less or not musically literate. So it would have taken people a while just to work out how to write how to write it down because of all the transposing going on and my brain starts to melt when I get too deeply into into the horn transpositions. There's a really, there's a really nifty thing that you see um, in which you have the use of movable clefs. So basically, if I if I be a horn player and I ignore the clef and pretend it's in treble clef, to me, that's that's readable as a horn player. I see it as C E G C. Good old transposition trick. But yeah. if, but if oh. you 
as the more musically literate um, director of the ensemble, read that movable clef, that's going to give you the concert pitch. Yeah, right. So you have you see you see them trying to work out how you see them trying to work out how to handle us. <laughs> yeah, and this idea of improvised parts is really interesting too. You know, there's a lot of theories about that with with Tim. Please with, don't let me give you ideas. With Tim, yeah, yeah. And have you in Sorry. the slow movement? <laughs> no. I should. I, but, I agree with Annika. There, yeah. I agree with Annika. There, there has to have been an oral tradition of horn playing long before this. And um, I, I point out a couple, an interesting thing, two interesting things. First, the first one is the earliest horns that we know of are in fact Scandinavian, the lure. Uh-huh. And they are horns, and they are all pitched more or less alike, that is to say in pairs. So that means that they must have had some template to work with in terms of length of tubing. But what's interesting is if you talk to an archaeologist, they say, well, these things imitate moose calls or something like this, or they're used in ceremonies, uh, ceremonial subjects. Well, they gave two of these lures dug up from a peat bog to a couple of horn players from the Danish Symphony Orchestra who proceeded to do jazz on it. Oh, how wonderful. And there, there's where the world goes round and round and round. You know, that was, however, that's a, that's a very good point. If someone has one instrument, they're going to know the harmonic series and they're going to experiment. Uh, same thing if you have two, you're going to experiment. And so the fact that you're sitting there doing one fundamental note while, you know, someone dances around a, a, a ship. Uh, no, it, people, humans are very ingenious with that. Second object is if we wonder how the oral tradition works, all we have to do is go see some things on TikTok yes. and see what happens when people start improvising. And then you get the idea that they're always experimenting. And so if we take that analogy back, we can find out that ex- exact how it, the horn uh, community began to expand. Can I just put a shout out for a colleague, uh, two colleagues of mine? Um, it's fascinating what you're saying about the, the Scandinavian lures and things like this. Um, um, uh, Letty Stott is a horn player and she's collaborating with uh, Peter Holmes, who Peter Holmes is just this remarkable um, uh, authority on the really, really ancient brass. And um, he, he he's not only an expert on, on the history of, uh, you know, the, the Roman Greek and even, 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 even earlier brass instruments, um, but he also makes instruments. And he's been collaborating with Letty Stott, who's a horn player, and she's doing performances on these Roman litues and and lures and all sorts of things. I really recommend checking out her her music, what she's making with this, because it, it's it, it's fascinating. Because she's uh, she's a twenty first century horn player. She's a brilliant musician. Um, she's and and it's very interesting because coming from my background as a historical horn player, where we, I think we're, we're interacting with the instruments in a very, very different way. I find what Letty and Peter are doing at the moment really inspiring. So if it's, yeah, I'll ch- check those out. I'll send you some details for the show notes. Excellent. Thank you. 
Uh, I, I we're over half an hour into the podcast. I feel it's now time to actually Fuck. Me- yeah <laughs> mention the uh, the program which we are going which we are preparing for um, for for July um, because well it's roughly roughly grouped under the concept of of Bach's horns and we have a concerto a cantata and a mass so three pretty different contexts for for the deployment of the horn as well as the other instruments and voices in there so we're we're, we're doing the hunting cantata the, the jagd cantata from from 1713 as you said Annika often uh, documented as Bach's first use or first written use of the horn um, and we're doing the first Brandenburg Concerto, which was uh, published in 1721, so also uh, relatively early in Bach's output, and then also the Mass in F major, um, which was a little bit later on. So I, I'd love you to tell us a bit uh, more, either of you, uh, about the type of horn writing in those pieces and perhaps how it's how it's different in those pieces but also uh i'm i'm so really curious about 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 how we get to this how we get to this virtuosic point or how perhaps let's start how how virtuosic are those uh are those pieces it's hard for me to say as a non-horn player um what what's the really hard stuff and what isn't although i imagine the quonium from the b minor mass is probably quite tricky well the, the difficult thing about the quonium is sitting around doing nothing for 45 minutes that's that's the challenge of the cornea. What we have to actually sure. have to play is delightful. It's 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 so so well written. Um, the challenge as a wind player um, is the fact that you're coming in cold and the implications that have for how the instrument responds and everything like that. Um, but getting to the the pieces that we're looking at for this program. Um, one of the things that I'm often aware of when, when we look at Bach's horn writing with modern eyes, um, and this is something that comes up a lot as uh, when we specialize in period performance, is trying to think of what the, the musical mindset of the, the world in which these musicians were playing would have been. In that, if you look at Bach's horn writing, so much of it, I, I would argue there's two, there's two clear camps of Bach's horn writing. But when we see a pair of horns, normally in D, F or G, um, it often corresponds with the type of writing that you see in these three works. So a pair of instruments, normally D, F and G, um, the way the two parts interact with one another is um, very important. And in fact, as we go through the history of the horn, whether you're the high horn player or the low horn player becomes more and more an issue as the as the century goes on. But we have this type of writing, and so much of Bach's writing falls into the same sort of um, same sort of lines. So I think what happens today is we look back at it and we see the sort of figuration, which is. Um, uh, I, I find it really interesting the figuration that Bach uses, thinking of how he writes for singers, how he writes for string players, how he writes for wind players. That there's certain there's certain sort of turns he takes. Once you've got that under it, under your skin, um, I'm not going to say it's the easiest music in the world, but it, it you you sort of recognize these patterns and and it it, it becomes second nature. The other so. W- 
it, part of part of the challenge of Bart's writing is his figuration. The other challenge to modernize is the tessitura. And this is because in order to get as close to a musical scale, we need to be in the upper echelons of the harmonic series. So for me, dancing around the the top harmonics is what I do as a Baroque horn player. From modernize, it's rare that we go up into that range. So again, I don't think when you look at Bach's horn writing that it was completely out of order for that time. It's just this is what you did. This is what you did as a horn player at this time. It's comparison to what we do now that makes it look challenging. Uh, and also what you do doing Bach the rest of the time, because as you say, the the horn lines are not so different from say the oboe lines or the vocal lines. It mm-hmm. fits within that pattern of complexity which. Bach was, which which was representative of Bach's style. Bach's orchestrational technique uh, is still dependent upon something which I will call late Renaissance, really, because he takes brass, he takes the woodwinds, and he takes the strings as consorts. And choirs, yeah. And so you stack them on top of each other, and you get this marvelous effect. But he's still thinking in terms of those as units. Uh, independent, mostly. Um, this brings, of course, uh, the idea of who, who actually played this stuff for Bach. Um, in Weimar, uh, we can probably track down someone who would be able to, or a couple who would be able to. We do know that there were a couple of horn players in the nearby court of Barbie uh, when he was at Curtin. Uh, and uh, it's a reasonable assumption that uh, the uh, first Brandenburg was, in fact, meant for them. I mean, it's reasonable. It's not not by any means certain. We do know that the court at Curtin hired these guys from Barbie to come from time to time. We have the salary list, but they're paid kind of extra. And then when he gets to Leipzig, he has what is probably the world's best uh, group of musicians. Uh, and those are the Stockpfeiffer. Uh, and, of course, we have the chief guy, uh, Gottfried Reicher, uh, you know, who's sitting there with his tromba da caccia, you know, looking mm-hmm. very smug and, and anticipating that, you know, 60 minutes or CBS morning will use him forever, you know. But um, the, the the fact is, though, that we also have Bach's adjudication of a member entering the um, Stratpfeiffer Corps. And it's instructive to note that they were supposed to be proficient enough to play concertos on trumpet, horn, violin, oboe, and cello. Yeah, they basically play everything, couldn't they? And, and I don't know anybody in, in any musician I know of that can actually do that uh, and then be able to do not only this, the zinc but also the trombone part as needed. And, of course, these are different sorts of things that are used in the church. Um, Bach only had a few singers, so... If he can get, you know, three trombones or, or three trombones and a cornetto up there, you know, then then it doubles the amount of choir power that they've got. But in doing his day-to-day cantata work, um, he uses the horn selectively. And that's what I found many, many years ago, was that all of the stuff, which is notated in weird ways, is in fact playable on natural instruments. You just have to figure out which one. 
the, the the whole thing is the whole thing is that I've I've tended to find I've tended to find the more I've looked at Bach, and the more I've played Bach, it feels like there's two very distinct schools of his horn writing. There's the 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 stuff which is um, things like the Lutheran Mass and the Brandenburg One and the vast the there's the two horn stuff and D F and G. And then you've got the other stuff, which is the single line, the very high, um, the quite chromatic. And for, for me, these are two very distinct schools, uh, two very distinct types of horn. Uh, quite possibly. Um, I think, though, that if we look at the ones that you're talking about, the, the hunting cantata, the uh, uh, Brandenburg and the mass, uh, those are in, this, in the traditional horn keys of F. Um, we know that the ponium, for example, which is a D horn, um, we do know that he paid a visit or two or five or ten times over to Dresden, uh, where Solanka held court, and Solanka's, the horn players at Dresden, uh, probably were as good, if not better, than Reicha. Uh, and, but they were doing this not as part of the, their duties with the city, they were doing it because they were court musicians. And so, um, and he would probably have noted that there, as if you go through the shrunks in, in, in Dresden, you'll find that a lot of the stuff is in D, um, which implies that these guys were either horn players or trumpet players because almost all the trumpet music's in D. Uh, so, uh, but I, I won't go that far because I you know we don't have the documentation on that. Uh, I do know that. Uh, yeah, go ahead. One of the things I was just going to flag up is one of the things that for, for me was a great attraction about getting into playing uh, natural horns and baroque horns and things like this is the importance of the tonalities. So the difference between horn and D, the difference between horn and D and F and G, each you know, it's a very well-known thing that in musical history, the the the, the tonalities of affects, the tonalities of characters associated with them. So for me, whenever there's whenever there's uh, music in D, um, that tends to be um, more regal, spiritual, noble. F tends to be much more to do with the outdoor world, um, which is ironic because actually lots, lots of the hunting horns are in D. But if I look at how Bart's writing for it, but basically we have all these characters that are associated with the different, um, the different tonalities, and with the horns that is such a tangible thing because you've got a longer or a shorter instrument, so it's darker or brighter. And um, we we come across this a lot in the 18th century when we're trying, especially when we start to look at the late 18th century, and we're having to fathom when the instrument starts to develop in a different different um, uh, direction. We're having to decide whether do you do you mean that B flat or that B flat, which which is it an alto crook or a basso crook? When the instrument's wider, then we have the really 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 clear difference in characteristics, and sometimes that's something that we're basing our judgments on. So the the affect associated with the keys is such a, a a really tangible thing when you've got this lump of metal in your hands. Well, there's there's another interesting aspect of it too, and that's something that often we forget, and that is the composer. And, um, you know, from, from the point of view of a performer, 
if you stick something in front of them, they look at this and go, oh, this piece of cake, boy, I'm going to practice till I can do it or forget it. You just, you, it, it can't be done. Um, however, uh, a composer like Bach, who is very, very good at creating these different consorts, he not only knew what his instruments could do, but he had in mind a sound world. Uh, the mass in F, for example, he wants something to be very important, very uh, powerful, but also uh, be the exegesis of the Lutheran liturgy in that point, although that's mostly the cantata's job. What he's doing here is he's saying, for this, F major is going to work because I can employ these different instruments, the horn being first and foremost above it. Now, for the hunting cantata, you can't really have a hunting cantata without horns. I mean, you really can't. <laughs> you know, a trumpet just doesn't cut it. Uh, and then finally, uh, when you get to something like the Brandenburgs, he's in each of those concerti grossi, the compositional techniques and the sound world is what he's creating, uh, which really is an amazing concept of the composer. Of course, the, the performers have to do it, but that's another issue. Yeah, I, I have so many questions. There's so many interesting, interesting uh, things here. Uh, I, I was gonna, I was hesitating to mention trumpet players because you know I don't know how much Annika thinks they're stepping on her turf playing the horn. Um, but uh, I have done a, I have done a performance of the B minor mass where um, I think it was the first trumpeter played the horn, uh, played the quoniam, and then I, you see, I personally, personally, I think that's ridiculous given there's a third oboe seat. Yeah. I think it. I think it. Yeah, it seems seems likely. That... Yeah, there's not there's not there's not time to do the change, and there's no, a there third oboe seat. I was I was once told by a colleague. I was once told by an oboe player colleague. They they basically said, you know, if you've learnt recorder at school, mm-hmm. and they said to me, <laughs> I, I I I I will give you a really easy read, and I'll I'll it, it's it's the sanctus, isn't it? It's the the uh, the, the yeah. third oboe yeah. part is it, yeah, exactly. yeah yeah, and 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 this this oboe colleague of mine said. I'll tell you what. Anyone I'll can give you play a really easy, oboe. easy read, and I'll teach. I'll teach it how to. But he said, if I do it, you have to promise me you will never offer that <laughs> as a professional, <laughs> as a professional thing, because he said you'll clear, you'll clear up all, all that gig, because you know the, the fixers will go right. We can. <laughs> Annika, I think you're two birds one stone. I think you've got the quernium sold uh, sold uh, anyway, so I don't think you need to. I don't think you need to play uh, any other instruments in the concert. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
uh, but it's interesting also this idea well not only about choirs but and uh, in Bach style specifically about the interchangeability of lines because the, the last movement of the hunting cantate is also the first movement of one of the sacred cantatas where the bassoons are basically playing the horn part there's a, there's an obligato bassoon part that if i remember correctly i think it's one four nine um so it's and i think it's probably in a different key but essentially exactly the same writing for but the horns aren't there i think trumpets trumpets are in that movement as well um so i think as you were implying uh when we started talking about these pieces annika often for bach you know, he'd, he'd put his semiquavers down and it didn't always matter who's meant to be playing it and who's meant to be singing it. But, of course, there, there must be, in the hunting cantata, very idiomatic horn writing as well. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's... Like in the, in, the, in the soprano aria. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very... It's, uh, one, one of the things... Bertel, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've got an opinion on this. Um, what, one of the things that I'm very aware of is um, when you're playing, well, I'm, I'm thinking about horn repertoire throughout the centuries actually here now, every so often you'll be playing something and a snippet of a hunting call um, will come in. So for example, if we uh, think to later in the 18th century, um, Haydn in the seasons, when he um, when there's the hunting chorus, he is actually using, um, I think he's using the Hallery call, which is a greeting call at that point. And we see this throughout, uh, we th- see these these known calls, like, that's one of the, the famous ones. It comes up throughout um, um, musical history as a, as a quote. One of the things that I've often heard um, is that the, opening of the Brandenburg that these are known calls I'm slightly cautious with this because within within horn playing research we have this wonderful book that was written in the second half of the 20th century by Horace Fitzpatrick which really upped the level of horn scholarship and did a lot to um, bring a lot of um, excellent scholarship about the Austro-Bohemian tradition however there's some things which are unverifiable or a little bit sketchy in his book and one of the things that he says is that these are known hunting calls now i've never been able to track track these two down but they are so the opening of brandenburg one it's so obviously a sort of as a horn player i'm always really proud to play those calls because it really feels as if we're 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 putting our feet down in the concert halls and staking this as territory that we deserve to be right at the beginning as well yeah it's really striking it's really up front well, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting because uh, if you look at the texture of the first Brandenburg, that first movement, those lovely little horn calls actually come out of nowhere. They're, they're like they're in the distance, and you're, you're kind of scurrying around trying to figure out where they're coming from. And, and since they're in imitation of each other, it's sort of like this guy over here is signaling that guy over there, and in the context of whatever this thing is... Uh, and pretty soon, of course, you then get uh, a much more integrated idea where the horns actually have some very lovely uh, integrated parts with the rest of the orchestra. But those stand out. Uh, to me, those those sound a great deal like Telemann. True, um, and, yes. 
and re- remember the Telemann triple horn concerto? You you certainly played that, where all of a sudden they're doing this weird florid stuff, and, and it's all up in the stratosphere, in D, I might add. Uh, and then all of a sudden they stop and they do this unison low G, you know, with a, with a fanfare. Yeah. Going, now, wait a minute. And now there, I'm just trying to remember, there is a, is it Hassa? There is a wonderful Hunt Concerto. Is it Hassa? I can't remember. There's there's a Hunt Concerto where basically you go through all, I think Hassa might be, I'll have to check it. You basically go through all the calls. So it's like, it's, it's like this sort of um, programmatic piece where you, you start with, and we're going off. And so, so these, these horn calls that keep on um, uh, sounding throughout our histories is, is such a central point. One of the things getting back to what Bertel just said about the opening to Brandenburg, which I think might be a really interesting to share with listeners, is there's a trick um, that for quite a while I've been doing with the open, opening of the Brandenburg Concerto, which is to do with the how directional the Baroque horn is. Now, today, we're used to seeing horn players with the bell of the instrument on our right-hand side. Now, it only really started to be standardised where the bell was in relation to our body. Later, much later in the 18th century, when we started to put our hand in the bell. And so traditionally, when we started to use the right hand technique, um, we put our right hand in the bell of the instrument. But if you read the authors of the time, they say, oh, this is standard. But some people do it the other way around. And of course, if you don't have any moving parts like valves, it makes no difference if the bell is on your right hand side or your left hand side. So it's only when the valve comes in in the early 19th century that they put the valves on the left hand side of the instrument, because that's tended to be what the horn players were doing. You do see you do see some some backwards horns. But when we look at the iconography of the 18th century, we often see the bells pointing up. And we often see pictures with either the bells pointing towards each other or away from each other. Now, if I'm doing Brandenburg 1, if you've got two horn players such as Anna Drysdale and myself, um, if we stand so our bells are pointing in opposite directions, when we do those opening fanfares, exactly what Bertel said about the horn players sounding to one another, because we're so directional, if we stand with our bells pointing in opposite directions, you're going to get the reflections of the room. And it's you're, you're going to, as an audience member, get that surround sound, that feeling of there's a horn player there and a horn player there. And then as soon as we get into the da 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 because we've got the proximity of standing next to each other, being able to coordinate that type of writing is fine. So quite often, this when is I'm your solution Rockhorn, to I me will... not putting each of you on different sides of the stage, isn't it, Annika? Exactly. <laughs> You're not the first person to ask me that. You're not the first person. I wasn't so you, going you get, to actually because I was thinking different... when they get to that bit when they're in thirds, it's really not going to work. But but is it? Isn't that a, but that solution works beautifully. You get the antiphonal effect because our bells are pointing in different Mm -hmm. directions. And then as soon as we get to that stuff that requires that real coordination between Anna and myself, Mm -hmm. because we're standing right next to each other. So you see how the, the instrument can have very dramatic effect. What I'm, what we're doing there is we're exactly as Bertil said, we're, we're, amplifying this idea of you know the audience hearing this music and 
what on earth's going on? I hear horn players coming from there and there and there. And we're, we're really playing with the drama of uh, that writing. And exactly, you know, that you make a really good point, Bertel, about the, the Telemann's writing. I, I, the, these, composers, these composers knew what they were doing with the drama. It certainly worked very effectively in the Christmas Oratorio when you guys had you. You were standing up front, mm. having having memorised the horn part. I have to add, um, <laughs> and uh, with with the with the bells pointing symmetrically, it looks great as well. I, I, I'm curious about the two horns thing. Why why are there so often? Why is it so often a pair? I mean, uh, Bertel, you said that um, Count Spork he he sent two servants off to learn horn. Was it is that from the hunt that horns were playing in pairs, or do we know where that comes from? I don't think so. I think it, I think it basically sounds better because then you can get all of the perfect octaves, the perfect open fifths, the thirds, um, and and it doesn't take much to realize that this sounds really good, uh, and in fact, it it makes far more of an impact. Than one instrument. The, the horn call, the hunting calls that we know, those are all unison, are they? Oh no, we we see we see different things. We see hunting calls, which um, uh, a lot of the manuals, a lot of the manuals for hunting calls, they will start off um, notating them as a, a single line, but quite quickly you get into two part writing. Um, and again, coming back to what Bertel was saying about the, you know. The idea of the hunt being, you know, a, a social event that that spirals into quite a big party. Um, we do we do see, um, yeah, we see a lot of things where it's it's notated as a single line call for when you're dotted around the hunting field, communicating to one another, and then you start to see uh, these calls with a second part, and yeah. So so I think in the hunting field you have the single horn players sending the messages but when it starts to become a, a social event you start to see the two-part two-part writing but um one one of the things i'm 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 always struck with is the symbolism that comes with a horn and when we're talking about the two-part writing i think one of the things with trumpets is we often have the idea of trinity we have the trumpets and their association with god yeah. So you know, there, there's, um, uh, for example, I I, um, um, I've, I fell into conversation with somebody recently about um, the coronation, and um, why why um, why the trumpets were involved and not the horn players, and it's like, well, we're we're not associated with that sort of event. That's the trumpet players' world. The trumpet players are are, are God, and the next closest thing to God is royalty, aristocrats, and things like this. So trumpets comes in packs of threes. And I it's, it's, I think it's also what Bertel said. It's it what sa- it's what sounds good for trumpets is the three-part writing. I, I don't know if this is a stupid comment, but, you know, those horned animals have two horns. Yeah, yes. Um, and there is, there is a you know, that symmetry of the curved horn. I don't know whether that's too, too uh, banal, but... I don't think it is uh, at uh, all. Tony, do you not believe in unicorns, do you? <laughs> Annika's, Annika's a unicorn. I know it. Um, <laughs> I, I have one last really geeky question, and I don't know whether uh, our audience are up for this or not. But it's about mouthpieces, and it goes back to this: this these these virtuoso trumpeters playing, you know, their clarino 
clarino trumpet and then just switching over to the horn and being able to play these very difficult, very high things. But using a trumpet mouthpiece. Now, I've got grade five trumpet, but I don't know that much about mouthpieces. Um, and I, you, I, we don't need to get in now also to hand stopping and, and holes mm-hmm. nowadays with modern versions of the instrument and so on. But uh, what is there a, a large variation in the types of people of mouthpieces that people use today? Because as I, and I understand from from Bertel's writing, you know, if a trumpet play, player grabbed a horn, he'd use a mouthpiece which is more suitable or, or, or closer to what he was used to. All I all I can say is from my personal experience that one of the things that I personally like to do is I. I find that actually if we have the same mouthpiece for everything, that's not helpful um, because the instruments are designed to do different things. The instruments are designed to sound different. Um, and, for example, uh, you know, Bertel was referring to the Stat Pfeiffer and all the instruments that would be within their remit. Um, I know when I'm swapping an instrument, if I end up with a mouthpiece which is as similar as possible to all the others. There's a certain level of feedback I'm not getting from the instrument. I'm kind of disguising that feedback in a desire to make everything feel the same. So personally, as a performer, I want it to be that when I pick up this instrument, the mouthpiece, which is such such an essential part of my communication with the instrument. I I want to be getting that feedback from the instrument. So I will choose different mouthpieces depending on which horn I'm playing because I want want to have that best relationship with the instrument. Um, I know that not everybody approaches things in the same way as I do, but I prefer to have, if if I'm playing something which is a bit more trumpety, a bit more of a trumpet mouthpiece, if I've got something which is a bit more of a horn, bit more of a horn mouthpiece. We have so many issues when we start to look at early 18th century mouthpieces, Um, partially because, you know, they're little things. They they go, hey, well, I I was just teaching at an institution over here, um, and one of the things is that a few years ago I was here teaching and I helped sort out all the crooks that went with the instruments. Give a couple of years, and they're all distributed, and partially because one of the things that we do is we beg, you know, beg, borrow, and steal. If you've if you've got a bit of that instrument, it ends up getting with this instrument. And one of the things that we really clearly see, and this becomes a massive issue when we're looking at organology of the 18th century, we see instruments being retailored for needs as they change. Um, so you can see it very you can see it very clearly actually when we get to the end of the 19th century where you start to see classical natural horns having valve blocks added to them. And we it, it makes it makes when we look at organology of the 18th century, it makes it a really important task. Bertel referred to earlier on about this question about when crooks start to be made. We have to be very we have to be very um observant when we're working with these instruments to see whether what we have is indicative of what was happening during the early 18th century or whether these instruments have been altered. So when we're looking at instruments, it's, it is actually a very, very difficult um, issue. But getting back to your question about mouthpieces, I, I tend to find that I change mouthpieces depending on what type of instrument I'm playing 
in order that I can get that feedback rather than try to try to pretend to be the same person because it's a different role when you're playing these different instruments. Sure. Does that? <laughs> yeah, no, sure. I was curious. Yeah. So there's there's no real dogma about that. It's it's really finding that you know the horse for the course, as it were, and what what of course the player, the personal things, preference of the there's player. There's certain things that educate. There's certain things that educate your decision making, and also I would I would say um, I very much find that every time I'm coming back to this, there's new information, there's new things that uh, I, I I certainly don't believe the same thing I did ten years ago because you keep on getting new bits of information that alter your perception of the instrument, so it's it's very hard for it to be um, a precise answer. I would say I agree with Annika that the mouthpiece issue is is far from resolved uh and uh, and i like the idea and and always have that mouthpieces tend to be very individual and uh when we when we look at gottfried reicher um uh, we don't really know what type of mouthpiece he had uh there's there's one on the painting on the houseman painting but you know is that real or is it not um, the instrumentarium of the Stadtpfeifer would have probably had any number of them, uh, and each of the musicians probably would have had several of their own. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's that's perfectly reasonable because it it it's really important to make the instrument sound from your own personal perspective as a performer. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well. It's an endlessly fascinating topic. I mean, uh, <laughs> and we could talk for hours and hours, I think, uh, around the, the history of it, the technical aspects, the instruments. It's really, really fascinating. And I'm really glad that we're going to be able to explore uh, these different aspects of, of the horn's role, in, and certainly in Bach's output specifically, in these concerts. Uh, Annika's going to have her work cut out uh, that evening, I think. Um, we're only performing it in Germany, sadly. No, no performances in the UK. No performances planned in North America as yet. Um, but uh, our listeners to the podcast will certainly be able to uh, get a lot of the background through this discussion. And we are going to record the two concerts in uh, which are at the uh, Bach Woche in Ansbach. Uh, at the end of July, we're going to record the, those four CDs. So those live performances will be captured and um, we'll be able to recycle this podcast episode over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Annika is going to start her day. I'm <laughs> going to go to bed and uh, and Bertel's going to enjoy the rest of his afternoon. What did you say? It's time for adult drink. It will actually, uh, what I may do is i may go out and um, fly around the islands a bit but i'll be back for a, an ale somewhere fly around the islands that sounds excellent i love that yeah. <laughs> thank you so much it was really really interesting and i'm i'm very grateful for all your time and all your thoughts absolute pleasure okay it's a pleasure take care see you
Thank you for listening to this episode of the S Cafe House. If you liked it, please share, subscribe, and as ever, if you want to hear more from us, head over to solomonsnot.co.uk where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter and never miss a gig.